One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It was a totally unprecedented sentencing hearing where Jason is put on trial. And the Martins aren't on trial at all because the first day of, of the sentencing hearing, they plead guilty. So their guilt or innocence is no longer in question. So the remaining eight days was all about, was Jason guilty? As we heard in yesterday's episode, the sentencing hearing for Molly Martins and her father Tom for the manslaughter of Jason Corbett focused heavily on the character of the dead Limerick man as the pair tried desperately to have their sentences reduced. And this was a strategy that didn't just happen overnight. This happened literally within the first minute of Tom Martin's police interview. Molly Martin's painted her husband as a controlling and violent abuser. There was even a suggestion he may have killed his first wife. They were prepared and the family were prepared for the Martins making these allegations in court. But I don't think they were prepared for the relentless nature of it. You had four days of arguments by, by the defence, which culminated in one of Tom Martin's two attorneys standing up, dramatically announcing that Jason had lied, that he killed his first wife. But of course, that is only one side of the story. On the other side is the Corbett's. Jason's two children, Jack and Sarah, who were now in their late teens, finally had the chance for their voices to be heard. Their words paint a very different picture of their home life in America and of their stepmother, Molly Martins. Documentary maker and journalist Brian Carroll was there the moment their victim impact statements were read out in court. As each kind of allegation of abuse by Molly was being unfolded by Sarah, Molly's howls grew louder. But it was very interesting, the judge, who had been the most rules-driven, stoic, impassive guy for all eight days, his jaw literally dropped. I'm Bernice Harrison, and this is in the news from the Irish Times. Today, inside the courtroom at the Martins trial. Part two. Molly Martins, according to the Corbett's. Brian, Jason's first wife, Mags, as we've spoken about before, she died when their two children, Jack and Sarah, were really young. Jack was a toddler, Sarah was a newborn. Can you remind us then of how Molly came to be part of this family's life in Limerick? This was a man who was like utterly devastated, left with two children who Jack was two, Sarah was only 12 weeks old. So he brought in a couple of au pairs to, to help him. And, you know, in the normal course of event, if an au pair comes here, it's normally a young girl. In this case, it was a French girl and a Spanish girl. They stayed for six months each. 
and then left, you know, because that's the normal procedure. So he wanted to get an au pair who was English-speaking, maybe a little bit more mature, and somebody who would stay for longer with the kids. So he puts up an online advertisement for a live-in au pair, and he does it with a very reputable agency. But Molly Martins bypassed the agency and emailed him privately, told him that she had been the foster parent of a girl in Knoxville, Tennessee, outlined all of these qualifications that she had. So on paper, she appeared hugely impressive. Um, But by going to him privately, she circumvented all the security and betting checks that you would normally have with this reputable recruitment agency for au pairs. So she arrives in Ireland around March 2008. Uh, It's about, I think it's about 18 months or so after Mags, Jason's first wife, dies. And she very, very quickly develops a relationship, not just with the children, and has them calling her mom. She develops a romantic relationship with Jason. And within three years, she's convinced him to relocate to the United States. And they go there and they marry appropriately enough, in a place called Bleak House in Tennessee. And really, that wedding is where Molly's story starts to to fall apart. Because in the week before Jason left Ireland to go to get married in the States, he had a conversation with a close friend at work and he he revealed that he had, you know, huge misgivings and that he just discovered that Molly was bipolar. Uh, but he, he felt he had to go ahead with it because the children had built up this relationship with her. And his words were, I can't take another mother from my kids. So they go over to get married. And, and a couple of nights before the wedding, they're all in a bar. And Jason's groomsmen are, are talking to Molly's bridesmaids. And they start hearing all these astonishing stories that the bridesmaids have been told by Molly that uh, she knew Jason's first wife. In fact, she knew her so well that Mags had begged Molly Martins to raise her children, to be a mother to my children, because Mags was dying of cancer. This, of course, was an absolute fabrication. So there were a number of other things that uh, the groomsmen and the the lynch party heard during those days, which raised serious red flags to the point where Jason's best friend, Paul Dillon, was actually, as Jason was walking up the aisle, Paul Dillon was standing behind him going, it's not too late, it's not too late, don't do it. Goodness. And Jason said, it is too late, I can't take another mother away from my kids, you know. So as you say, Molly lied about being a foster parent. She lied to her bridesmaids about knowing Jason's first wife, Mags. What other lies from Molly came out over the course of the sentencing hearing? Yeah, it's actually interesting in that the... the the plea agreement actually puts huge restrictions on what you can and what the defence and prosecution could and couldn't say. But one thing that the prosecution were allowed was if a witness for the defence said something about Molly, then the prosecution were entitled to challenge Molly's credibility. And they did that very successfully in that anytime, any, you know, when these neighbours, for example, were talking about how Molly was telling them about domestic abuse in the house and so on, They challenged each of those witnesses by saying, you know, well, Molly has variously claimed to be a foster parent, uh, that she had a dead sister. There was no such sister. Uh, And the interesting line there was that when Molly was in 
Molly had a very erratic attendance record uh, in what we would call secondary school. But her parents, because of their influence and their wealth, were able to get her into this pre prestigious university called Clemson University. And she, she dropped out after the first semester. But while she was there, she used to have a framed photograph by her bed in her dorm room. And what detectives discovered was that the photograph in the frame was, you know, when you buy a picture frame at a there's shop. There's already a picture in it. There's already a picture in it. That's all that was. Just and a picture she, and who did of some she say girl. it was? And she said, she told all her friends and dormits that this is my sister, my little sister. She died from leukemia. Then there were like a lot of sort of, you know, innocuous enough lies, you know, like uh, she claimed to be a, a publisher in Ireland, an editor in Ireland. She claimed to have been on the verge of the US Olympic swim team. She was a swim coach for kids in the neighbourhood where they lived, but she distributed flyers all around the neighbourhood, which claimed that she was on the Clemson University varsity swim team. You know, you know she just she was a fantasist, and uh, there's a lot of evidence of her, you know, drinking a lot. Uh, we didn't hear about it in this sentencing hearing, but she was previously engaged before she came to Ireland. She was engaged to a guy called Keith McGinn, and not long after the Jason was killed, Tracy Lynch, who's Jason's sister and now the guardian of Jack and Sarah, she was contacted by somebody to say, um, you know, Molly was engaged before and the guy she was engaged to wrote a book about her. He didn't name her in it, but in the book, the person who is Molly is in a psychiatric unit. Um, getting she's on 15 different medications a day and her parents send her to a psychiatric unit in Georgia. And that was subsequently confirmed. She was in so a that was Molly's story. She was in a psychiatric unit only weeks before she comes to Ireland to be in the care of two kids who have been have lost her mother uh, to be um, an au pair, living au pair for a man who's struggling to raise these two small kids on his own. So there's question marks about her, obviously, but obviously there's, there's then question marks about. Tom and Sharon Martins, her parents. I mean, it allowed this to happen. Most parents, you'd imagine, would A, not want their child who's just come out of a psychiatric unit to go to another country, to be on the other side of a world. You know, you'd mm. imagine they'd want to keep her close and care for her. But secondly, you, the last thing you'd want is putting her yeah. in a position of trust and responsibility two for two really vulnerable kids. the judgment hearing, the court heard victim impact statements and they were read out by Jason's sister and his two children. And I suppose that was, you know, their chance to really tell a different side because the court had, had really heard so much negative stuff about Jason. But they painted a very different picture uh, of, of Jason. You, you were in court the day they were read out. That must have been really emotional. It was, I think... To be honest, one of the most dramatic things I've ever seen and the, and the most emotional things I've ever seen because those two children have been on such a long journey, eight years during which they have been forced to be silent and have also been forced to say things, to lie on behalf of the Martins and those lies have subsequently led to the Martins winning their appeal, being free, getting this plea deal now, looking for a reduced sentence. So this is their moment, and they've had to sit there in this courtroom 
for eight days while their father's character has been assassinated and the children themselves have been used as the principal weapons in that assassination of his character. So I can't, you know, they said in court as part of their victim impact statement, so um, it's okay to say it here. Like, they have been in therapy for eight years. It's an ongoing struggle. You can only imagine how they come to terms with that. So when they step into the well of the court, it's their opportunity to address Molly Martins, to reveal Molly Martins for who she really is. But it's also their way of, you know, speaking to their father. It was interesting that uh, the judge in the original custody case, when he granted guardianship to Tracy Lynch, he he did so, he said, on the basis of Jason's will. He said Jason wanted these kids to be raised in Ireland by Tracy if anything happened to him. And the judge used the phrase that this was Jason speaking from beyond the grave. Well, the kids here were speaking to Jason and this was a moment of redemption not just for the kids themselves, but for Jason, because they were finally getting to rebut, you know, six, seven, eight days of hearing that their father is a domestic abuser, that he killed his first wife. So they stood up and, you know, Sarah was quite emotional and crying. um, And while she was delivering her victim impact statement, Molly is five feet away, sobbing so loudly that she's, you know, threatening to drown out Sarah's words, which... And did nobody tell her to stop? No, and if you ever needed a metaphor for, you know, that it's all about Molly, there it is, you know. Uh, But Sarah uh, talked about, you know, how Molly was actually the abuser in in the house, that Sarah would have to drag Molly off of Jack's back uh, that she was beating him so much. Sarah pointed out that One of the stories that was told by the neighbours to substantiate abuse by Jason was that one morning this neighbour claimed to have got a call from Molly saying Jason had been beating her up in the house and she had to run out of the house and bring Sarah to school and she forgot to bring her shoes. Sarah said what actually happened was my dad went to work at half six in the morning, worked for 12 hours every day. He wasn't even there. That actually Molly was beating up Jack so badly Sarah ran out of the house. Molly ran after her. Sarah was so upset that she didn't want to return to the house because she didn't want Molly being left on her own with Jack. So as each kind of allegation of abuse by Molly was being unfolded by Sarah, Molly's howls grew louder. But it was very interesting to judge who had been the most rules-driven, stoic, impassive guy for all eight days, his jaw literally dropped when he heard that story about the shoes and he looked down at her and he'd already decided on his sentence. That's really crucial here. Like the children got the opportunity to speak at last and for them it was redemptive, I suppose, and for their father it was redemptive and it it changed the narrative, but it didn't change the sentence because the judge had already decided on the sentence. And Jack, when he stood up, Jack was, I think... Not as emotional as Sarah, and it was, you could tell how upset he was and how angry he was. Um, And he said, which was really heartbreaking, he said that he had contemplated suicide as a young man because he wanted to be with his mother and father. This is what really was so emotional, he said, because I wanted to say sorry to them. You know, so he still feels that somehow he's guilty 
because his words have been used to help the Martins and to denigrate his father's reputation. One thing Jack said, and I, I thought it was, it confused me because I couldn't understand why it hadn't been mentioned in the original 2017 court case. He said that when he was in uh, his uncle's house, that would be uh, Molly Martin's brother, um, he saw in that house his dad's phone, laptop, computers and hard drives in sort of an evidence bag in, in, in Molly Martin's brother's house. What's, what's that about? That was absolutely astonishing evidence. You know, uh, the reason it wasn't entered into the original trial in 2017 was because the judge decided the children's statements would be pre- prejudicial and because they'd recanted them, he, he wasn't going to allow them to go to the jury. So then any kind of subsequent... Jack and Sarah didn't get to give testimony in the 2017 trial. But what Jack said is that when they go to Bobby Martin's house, who's Molly's brother, and it's important to point out that he's a federal agent. Tom has been in the FBI for 30 years. Sharon Martin's brother, Molly's uncle, is a federal agent in Washington. So this is a family that are steeped in law enforcement. In procedure In procedure. So Jack, when he gets to Bobby's house... The place is absolutely chock-a-block with relatives. Bobby, Bobby's wife's relatives are up from Puerto Rico. Molly's brothers start arriving. Uh, Molly's uncle and aunt come down from Washington. So there's literally, on the first night, Jack had to sleep on a couch on his own. Uh, then he's put into a storeroom. His dad had just died. Yeah, he's, like, he's 10 years old. He's sleeping in a storeroom just off the kitchen, and he can't sleep. He can't talk. He can't smile. He comes out. He he get comes out really early. This is about two days after the killing, and walks into the kitchen. And there on the kitchen counter are all these police evidence bags. So they're your typical evidence bags. You know the kind of those yellowy bags with transparent window on them. And inside in the bags are Jason's phone, Jason's computer, Jason's hard drive, and Jason's wallet. And Sarah also saw them there. These were not found at the house on the night. They were never introduced into evidence. And yet, according to Jack, here they are in Bobby Martin's house. And the reason why that... Jack actually used the phrase in his victim impact statement. He said there there was a conspiracy among the wider Martin family. Now, that's a very, very serious allegation to make. And there is no indication at the moment that that's going to be investigated or, you know, that anything is going to happen about that. And if you ask yourself, if these events played out as Tom and Molly Martin say, that there was a row, uh, that Jason was choking Molly, that Tom had to do this to defend his daughter, then why does somebody's phone, computer, hard drive and wallet disappear from the house, never to be found again? One reason that might happen is... If Jason was considering leaving Molly, taking the kids and coming home, and we know from the 2017 trial that Jason was searching that day on Expedia for flights to Ireland. Because they don't have their computer, they they weren't able to establish that. 
because they didn't have his phone, they weren't able to establish that he had been uh, sending messages to people saying that he was going to leave. So you have this bizarre story where, you know, the Martins have spent eight years building this line of self-defense, you know, based on Jason being a domestic abuser. And then you have this parallel story where the children and Jason's friends all report that he was coming home. And what's really intriguing here is that Tracy Lynch, as the children's guardian, her husband, Dave, is also a guardian, but he was executor of Jason's will. And in his role as, as executor, he was able to get contact Google and get Jason's Gmail records. So one of the things they found was, you know, if you sometimes, if you go on Expedia and you're looking for a flight and then you don't carry on, you don't complete it, they'll send you an email yes. saying, you know, Are you finish sure? your reservation. <laughs> you know? Yes, yeah, yeah, So yeah. Jason got one of those Ooh. from Expedia that night. So right. we know that he was searching for flights. So frustrating for the family to know yeah. all this. Mm. But nothing, nothing can yeah. be done about that. Even though the judge, when he was sentencing Molly, he asked that the, she be uh, psychiatrically assessed in prison and given whatever medication she needs. Uh, in, in the one breath, he asked for her to be psychologically assessed. And then in, in the same breath, he says that he's going to reduce her sentence because she was a good mother. That was so heartbreaking for the family to hear. And it's usually frustrating for them that though the children got to make their victim impact statements and they're so happy that they did make them and that they did change the narrative, uh, not just in Ireland, but people in the States started to think, okay, maybe there's a little bit more to this than we've been hearing, you know. But what's usually frustrating for them is that the case is closed. The victim impact statements are made after the judge has decided what his sentence is going to be. So he had outlined uh, all the mitigating factors that he'd found in Tom Martin's favour and Molly Martin's favour. He hadn't said what the sentence would be. He then invited the kids to make the victim impact statement. And you could, cle you could clearly see from his face that he was usually impacted by what they said, but it didn't impact the sentence that he was going to give them. It, he'd already decided that. Ryan, thanks very much. Thank you. That's all for today. My thanks to our guest, Brian Carroll. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan. In the news, we'll be back tomorrow. infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing we wondered the same thing so we made byheart a better formula for formula 
Learn more at byheart.com.